Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. We're delighted to be back and particularly pleased this week to have with us Tom Jensen, who's been with us a number of times. Tom is the director of public policy polling, a nationally well-known firm that does polling. And it happens to be located right next door to us in our building in High Woods in Raleigh, North Carolina. So it's a, it's a long trip for uh, for Tom to come over. But in this particular case, we're doing it by Zoom and Tom's in his office and I'm in mine and Jason is yet in the studio. So we're all around. Well, Tom, thank you for being with us. And we uh, particularly are pleased that, uh, uh, to have uh, you here because I know you're doing some polling on some things that are of vital interest to us all right now. And in particular, we've got an election coming up in less than four weeks. So uh, I know that you just finished a poll. Let me ask you this. Was this poll done before or after the uh, unusual events of last week? It was done after most of the unusual events of last week. This poll was conducted Sunday and Monday. So by the time it was conducted, uh, everybody knew that Trump had coronavirus and was in the hospital uh, the, the first wave of the sexting scandal in the North Carolina Senate race had already come out. There have been some more developments on that front since the poll was conducted. But this is post-debate and post-Trump hospitalization. And one thing that we've definitely just learned to accept this cycle is no matter when you do a poll, something else is going to have happened by the time you finish the poll because we have chaos every single day. Well, this is uh, certainly uh, last week and, and the events before those that you named, including the tax uh, uh, records becoming public, also had uh, uh, a big uh, amount of news coverage and, uh, and were of interest to a lot of people who were following the election. But seemingly not much of anything is changing the, the way people are thinking, uh, or at least that's what I'm feeling. And... Uh, what I'd like to know now is what is what are the findings that you are uncovering as you do surveying? Well, this week there's been a little bit of a movement more towards Biden in the presidential race. I think it's becoming sort of less and less competitive by the day. And that's not to say something won't happen to make it more competitive in the final three weeks and change of the campaign. But uh, it does seem that Biden is doing a couple points better one ramification of that, for instance, is that we had a poll this week where Biden is ahead in Texas. So we've sort of uh, got, we're sort of getting to the point where uh, Biden's standing is getting increasingly, I would say, almost solid in most of the key swing states. Uh, and then he has a very decent chance of winning some of these next tier swing states as well. Places like Texas and Georgia that Democrats haven't won a long time in a long time. Places like Ohio and Iowa, where Democrats have been successful in the not so distant past, but where they had a hard time in 2016, where Hillary Clinton got beat pretty badly. Uh, and in a lot of the national poll averages now, Biden's lead is now starting to come out closer to about 10 points, uh, whereas for most of the year, it's been around the six, seven point uh, marker. So certainly it's been about as bad of a week for Trump as he could have had between uh, having COVID and the poor performance in the first debate, and maybe some of these numbers will get back to where they were before. Uh, but right now, we sort of were in a situation in October where Trump really needed to be making the race closer, and instead it's going in the other direction. 
How much of that do you think is uh, uh, related to the uh, tax information or the debate or the coronavirus handling by Trump? I think that the tax story hasn't really broken through. So I don't think that that uh, probably has much to do with it. It, it. It's just one of the ironies of this election cycle. That's the kind of thing that would have been uh, big daily news for days on end in a more normal sort of presidential election. But in this presidential election with just nonstop uh, drama, it, it sort of almost turned into a one day story or maybe a, a couple day story at most. So I do think that the crux of Trump's problems is the coronavirus situation. And I think him getting coronavirus, usually if a president got sick, he might see some sort of uh, boost related to that because people might feel bad for him. I think in this case, the opposite has happened to Trump because Trump getting coronavirus himself, I think in a lot of voters' minds, is just so symbolic of how he's handled the situation poorly. Uh, you know, I think people sort of look at it that he didn't take it seriously for the country as a whole. He didn't take it seriously on a personal level. Uh, and then his getting the coronavirus, I think, is just sort of so symbolic of both of those things. One thing that's been interesting in our polling in the last week is that we're seeing more Republican-leaning voters who voted for Trump last time now coming around and saying, OK, I'm voting for Biden. Almost like Trump getting the coronavirus was just sort of the final straw to some people in uh, sort of reflecting how poorly he's handled the whole situation. Well, uh, you know, if uh, you put your campaign hat on now because you've done lots of polling and you've seen the results of how people adjust in uh, on the fly, what would you suggest that uh, Trump needs to do if he's going to get back into the race, so to speak? Well, what Trump needs to do is what he's always needed to do, which is act like a normal president. And I just don't know that he has it in him. Uh, but if he could... And interestingly enough, that's what is the charm to a number of the, of the Trump supporters is that he doesn't act like a normal president. And it, I think that's, that's kind of a paradox. <laughs> and I think that's good enough to get him to maybe 45% of the vote in this election. Uh, but I don't know if it's enough to get him too far beyond that. Uh, and one thing that's very different this time compared to four years ago was that Trump was able to win only getting around 45% of the vote in 2016. That's because a lot of people were voting third party for president. And this time around, that's not a thing. So Trump might get about the same share of the vote that he got last time, but Biden's going to get over 50%, where Hillary was only at about 48%. That's a big difference between this time and the last time around. I still think there's a lot of Republican-leaning voters who probably don't want to vote for Biden, but they just have to have some sort of confidence uh, that Trump would take a different approach in a second term than he's taken during the first term. And it doesn't seem like that's going to happen. This, this, uh, this drama this week of refusing to participate in the second debate, people have been asking me for months, what are the things that can get Trump back into the race. And I said, well, I really think that there's four inflection points that could get Trump back into the race. And that was the Democratic vice presidential pick. That didn't get Trump back into the race because Democrats made a perfectly safe choice. If a bad choice had been made, that might've helped Trump to get in. Then if the Democratic convention was a disaster, I thought that could get Trump back in the race, but it wasn't, it was perfectly successful. 
Then it was, well, if the Republican convention's just incredibly successful and there's a new Trump uh, that really just makes people rethink how they felt about him over the last four years, that could get him back in the race. I think the Republican convention was successful enough, but it didn't pass that bar of getting people to change their mind about Trump. So then the last thing that could get Trump back in the race was the debates. Trump got demolished in the first debate, and now he says he's not going to do the second debate. So this is one of his last chances to get back in the race, and he's punting on it. Maybe he'll change his mind and decide to be in the debate after all. I think that would be wise on his behalf. Uh, but right now, he's letting one of his last chances to get people to think about this race differently, leaving it on the table. Now, uh, we have learned in the past, <laughs> several times in the past, uh, that the popular vote nationwide is not so as, as important as the Electoral College vote. So where does Trump stand and uh, how does the race stand in electoral votes right now? And are there possibilities that Trump could win enough of those key states that he gets back in the race in the Electoral College vote? So there's six key states that are going to determine the election. And those are Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Florida, Arizona, and North Carolina. And Biden needs to win three of those states in order to get elected president. And right now, Biden is up in all six of them. Uh, in North Carolina and Florida and Arizona, Biden is up by about four. And then in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, Biden is up by about six or seven points. So Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, if Biden wins those, he's won the election. And right now, not only is he ahead in them, but he's ahead in them by six or seven points. And another thing that's different from last time around is let's say that Hillary Clinton was up by six points in Michigan at this time four years ago, just like Biden's up by six points in Michigan right now. Hillary Clinton's version of being up by six points in Michigan was 46 to 40, with 14% of voters either voting third party or undecided. Biden's version of being up by six points in Michigan is 50 to 44, because almost nobody is voting third party or voting for undecided or, or is undecided. So when Hillary had, when Hillary and Trump had 14% of voters undecided three and a half weeks out, that left room for those undecideds to move strongly in one direction at the end and still give Trump the win. That is what ended up happening. People who decided in the last month went about three to one for Trump. This time around, with it being 50 to 44 in a state like Michigan and only 6% undecided, even if they did break three to one for Trump, just like they did four years ago, that only moves the race by three points from a six-point Biden lead to a three-point Biden lead. So that is just a big difference between this time and last time around is that so few voters are undecided so few voters are voting third party, there's really just not that many voters to move off the fence for Trump to get this election back in his column. So it is a better picture for Trump in the swing states than nationally, because he's only down four to six in the swing states and he's down 10 nationally. Uh, and Trump can win the electoral college only losing the popular vote by three points. But I think once you get to four, five, six points, loss in the national popular vote, Trump cannot win the Electoral College. So if you had to call the election today, you would say that uh, that uh, President Trump will turn out to be a one-term president and uh, 
President Biden and Harris will be the new team. Yeah, and I don't think it's going to be that close. I think I think there's less suspense at this point about whether Biden's going to win the Electoral College than there is about whether he's going to put up some sort of record-setting performance in the Electoral College where he also wins Georgia and Texas and Ohio and Iowa and all these states that started out the year being thought of as second-tier swing states and now are thought of as being swing states just the same as anywhere else. Our guest is Tom Jensen. He's the director of public policy polling, and we're talking about the results of their latest poll here in North Carolina. And of course, they've done polls in other states as well. And we will talk about the senatorial race. We'll talk about some other aspects of this campaign. And we'll do that when we return with the next segment of Carolina Newspapers. As an 18-year-old, I let my mistakes kind of take over my life. I was 0.5 credits away from completing high school, and I didn't do it. Ten years later, at age 28, Jackie finished her high school diploma. When I found out that I was pregnant, I know that I had to do something for myself if I wanted to make her a better person and provide a better life for her. My family never stopped pushing for me to be better because they knew what I could become and who I could become as a person. My support team is amazing. The educational director, my sister, and even my seven-year-old daughter has just been more than the support that I could ask for. I've been given an opportunity, and I'm just thankful for it. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Adopt US Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting A Teenager Learning the Lingo. GOAT, G O A T, acronym, stands for Greatest of All Time, as in Spaghetti Sandwiches for Dinner? They're my fave. Dad, you're the GOAT. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. Visit adoptuskids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. Tom Jensen is our guest. He's been with us a number of times. Uh, Tom is uh, a native of Ann Arbor, Michigan, and uh, traveled south to go to UNC Chapel Hill. He's been with public policy polling now for, I don't know how long, a long time. How long have you been with him, uh, Tom? 13 years. 13 13 years. This is my fourth presidential election. Well, and they say, uh, I mean, this proves that you can't hold on to a job, I guess. So (laughs) we're proud of you for that. Uh, Tom, uh, of course, public policy polling has uh, earned quite a reputation nationwide as being one of the better, uh, more reliable polls. and uh, so we are always thankful when Tom shares the results of the poll. Uh, Tom, we in the first segment talked a lot about the uh, the overall standing of the presidential candidates. You also asked about things like who the public considers as favorable and unfavorable and so forth. Anything there that you'd like to point out? Well, one thing that's interesting about this election is that even though I do think Joe Biden's going to win by a lot, He's still not that popular. Voters are pretty evenly divided in their feelings about him. Uh, But Trump, when it comes to his approval or his favorability ratings at about a net minus 15. uh, So Biden breaking even comes out looking pretty good compared to that. And one thing that's really interesting about this election compared to four years ago, and I think this is something that's probably a pretty evergreen finding, 
But four years ago, there were a lot of voters who dislike, disliked both Clinton and Trump. And if you disliked both Clinton and Trump, you were likely to vote for Trump by about a two to one margin. Well, this time around, there's a lot of voters who dislike both Biden and Trump. But if you dislike both Biden and Trump, you're likely to vote for Biden by about a two to one margin. And that is one thing that causes this country to swing from election to election. There's a certain group of voters that dislikes everybody and they tend to vote for whoever is out of power. So in 2016, those people who disliked everybody voted for Trump because they wanted to change for them from the Democrats. But this time around, people who dislike everybody are voting for Biden because they want to change from the Republicans. So that's the most interesting thing I think about the candidates is personal images is that this time around what we call the double haters, the people who hate both sides are more likely to vote for Biden. We have also had, and this is after your survey, we've also had a vice presidential uh, debate and a lot of people uh, actually characterize that as maybe uh, somewhat of a presidential race because we've got two candidates running, both uh, President uh, Trump and uh, uh, Vice President uh, Biden, who are older than any time we've, uh, we're going to elect an older president than we've elected, is, is where I'm going with this. And so a lot of people are watching the vice presidential selections very carefully. Uh, what do you see there? So CNN did a poll about the vice presidential debate and, uh, and found that Kamala Harris won it by about 20 to 30 points. Uh, so just another thing sort of confirming the Democratic ticket being a little bit stronger than the Republican ticket. I think if Pence was actually the Republican candidate for president, he would be doing better than Trump. Uh, because when we talk about how what Trump needs to do is just act normal, Pence comes pretty close to just acting normal. Uh, he has a lot of the same views as Trump, but he's just able to package it in maybe what Americans would view as a much more presidential manner. But at any rate, uh, uh, people thought that Harris did a better job in the debate than Pence did, according to the uh, only poll that came out after it. So I think that suggests that, uh, you know, if, if by any unfortunate chance Harris did have to become president here in the next four years, uh, at least that big unveiling to the country that she had in the debate this week, she passed that test and I think came off pretty well to people. So uh, in the presidential, uh, vice presidential debate, uh, one of the criticisms that uh, Vice President uh, uh, Pence did get was the fact that he continually talked well over his limit and talked over the moderator several times trying to stop him. Uh, does that affect people's opinions uh, very much, or uh, was that extra conversation actually helpful? <laughs> uh, I think people do not like the, the folks being rude to the moderators in the debate, but I think I on the spectrum of everything going on in the country right now, it probably doesn't rise too high to people's concern list. So one of the findings of that post-debate poll was that people thought Pence interrupted a lot more than Harris. And we found that people thought, and, and CNN found that people thought Harris won the debate. So uh, presumably Pence's interrupting didn't go over well, uh, but I, 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 don't, I don't see that having much of an impact on anything. The, vi the vice presidential well, debate, uh, rarely makes history. How many people who are undecided watch the, the debate? Is this a source that undecideds go to and watch either the presidential or the vice presidential? 
people or is there a greater percentage of people who've actually already watched and made their decisions and they're just uh, coming on to, to see what uh, is going to happen that particular night? I would compare it to a football game between UNC and Duke. We can't, we can't, we can't compare it to a basketball game, but compare it to a football game between UNC and Duke. Now, UNC and Duke have built up much more respectable football programs in recent years than they might have had 15 years ago. But at the end of the day, if you're a, a college football fan and you're watching UNC and Duke, it's probably because you care about UNC and Duke. It's not the football game you're going to choose to watch, uh, you know, just because you think it's the, the best football game in the country that day. And I think it's a similar thing with the vice presidential debate. If you are really excited about the Biden-Harris ticket or you're really excited about the Trump-Pence ticket, you're going to watch the debate and root for your team and hope your team wins. If you do not have that sort of investment in the contest, you're going to watch playoff baseball or watch Netflix or watch something other than the vice presidential debate. So that's a roundabout way to say uh, that I think your premise is correct or your, your, your thought is correct that uh, undecideds and people who are not political junkies are not turning into the vice presidential debate. I barely watch the vice presidential debate. Uh, and I, you know, I'm about as interested in politics as anyone could be, but it just does not matter. So um, we, we've talked a lot about undecided votes, and then we've also talked about unaffiliated or people who are not registered Republicans or registered Democrats. Uh, so let's, how did that break down? Uh, going back not to the undecided, but to the un unaffiliated people who are not a member of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. How do they see the results of the polls that you're taking? This is a year that uh, unaffiliated voters are leaning pretty strongly towards the Democrats, uh, both in North Carolina and across the country as a whole. And unaffiliated voters have some tendency to vote for who's ever out, whoever's out of power. So in that context, it's not very surprising. But we did a new North Carolina presidential poll this week. And among unaffiliated voters in the state, uh, Joe Biden was beating Donald Trump by 11. And we're seeing pretty sorts of pretty similar kinds of numbers to that all over the country, um, where uh, unaffiliateds are just leaning Democratic this year. It's going to be a good group for Democrats. And what makes that particularly challenging for Republicans in North Carolina is that even though Democrats' party registration advantage isn't in the in the state isn't what it used to be, there are still six percent more Democrats than Republicans in North Carolina. So what that means is that if Democrats vote Democratic, which they do much more than they ever have historically, uh, and Republicans vote Republican, Republicans have to win unaffiliated voters in North Carolina to win the key statewide races to make up for Democrats having that registration advantage. And if Republicans are losing unaffiliated, it's on top of Democrats already having that registration advantage, it gets very difficult for Republicans to win elections in this state. Uh, you, we mentioned earlier the uh, tax uh, uh, income, the tax return uh, being made public and uh, the financial status of President Trump being uh, somewhat exposed to the fact that he has rather sizable debts coming due. Uh, you mentioned that that has not become an issue yet. Do you think that will become an issue at any point during this election? It really just depends on whether Democrats want to make it a focal point in their campaign ads and stuff, because I don't think it's going to get 
uh, wall-to-wall media coverage just because there's too much going on for anything to get wall-to-wall media coverage. So I think Democrats would have to decide if they think that's one of the top issues that they want to really push in their paid advertising. And my guess is that it's not really going to be. Uh, Democrats have been pretty disciplined in their messaging in this election, making it about things like health care that really hit close to home. Uh, and I just don't think that uh, Trump's taxes necessarily rise to that level of being something that voters are thinking about a lot in their everyday lives. Uh, so I think that uh, it probably is something that fits well into some frames uh, where you could talk about income inequality and Trump's taxes are a good example of that, how regular people have had their taxes go up under his leadership while the wealthy um, have have gotten a big tax break. I think that Trump's tax returns are something that sort of help you to build that case. Uh, but I would be surprised if they end up being a particularly uh, focal point in the in the remainder of the election. I also think the other thing is just that all the intricacies of it are too complicated for average people to understand in a lot of cases. And that sort of uh, keeps it from being as big of an issue as it otherwise might be. In the next segment, uh, we're going to talk about the United States Senate race between Tom Tillis and Cal Cunningham and some very interesting developments in that race. Uh, and, and of course, that race is so important to the Democrats because I think almost everyone assumes they've got to take North Carolina if they're going to take control of the Senate. Uh, we can talk about that as well. And we will do that when we return with our guest, Tom Jensen, who's the director of public policy polling. And we'll do that right after these messages. To some people, the sound of a baby babbling doesn't mean much. But that's not necessarily true. By six months, they're combining vowels and consonants. By nine months, they're trying out different kinds of sounds. And by 12 months, their babbling is beginning to take on some meaning. Especially if there's no babbling at all. Little to no babbling by 12 months or later is just one of the possible signs of autism in children. Early screening and intervention can make a lifetime of difference and unlock a world of possibilities. Take the first step at AutismSpeaks.org. A public service announcement brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right, they can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest is uh, Tom Jensen, who's the director of public policy polling. We're talking about their latest poll, which was conducted uh, before the vice presidential debate, but after uh, the events of last week, which were significant and, and numerous. Um, and uh, in this segment, we're going to turn to uh, the United States Senate race. And uh, generally speaking, I think uh, most. Most people assume that if the Democrats are going to get control of the Senate, 
they almost have to take North Carolina. And so thousands and thousands, well, actually millions and millions of dollars <laughs> are being spent by the, the candidates uh, for uh, representing uh, either the actual campaigns of Tom Dillis and Cal Cunningham or the so-called dark money or third-party money who are supporting their those candidates in an indirect way. Well, the, the race took a big turn last week when uh, Tom Tillis uh, this discovered that he had tested positive for COVID-19. And of course, Cal Cunningham and his, uh, uh, his uh, I guess, sex scandal. Uh, so let's just get into that. And, and uh, what, what do you think is happening there, uh, Tom? Well, we found that at least initially, the sex scandal did not have much of an impact on the Senate race. Those allegations came out uh, on a Friday night, and we did a poll Sunday and Monday after there had been some time for people to sort of become aware of all that. And we found that Cunningham was still leading by six points, 48 to 42. And we found that 58% of voters had heard about the scandal and that 58% of voters said it did not make any difference either way in their vote. Uh, we will have to see as there have been additional developments in the story over the course of the week, uh, if things change any more in subsequent polling. But one thing that we found that was really interesting in that poll that we did um, right after the, the, the first wave of the scandal had come out was we found that Cal Cunningham had had a big dip in his favorability rating. We had usually found uh, before this that he had about a plus 15 net positive favorability rating. And in the first poll that we did after these allegations came out, he was at minus two. So he had about a 17 point dip in his net favorability rating. But Tillis's net favorability rating in comparison to Cunningham's minus two is minus 23. Only 31% of voters in North Carolina have a positive opinion of Tillis. 54% have a negative opinion of him. It's pretty hard to get reelected when you have those sorts of numbers. So I think it may just be a situation where even if people are repulsed by Cunningham's behavior, they still think that it's more important to get Tillis out of the Senate than it is to punish Cunningham for his behavior. I personally uh, have heard from one person who said that they would not vote for Cunningham anymore because of this, who previously had been planning to vote for Cunningham. So we'll see if there's oh, well, more shoot. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, well, both of us are saying go ahead, so I will. Uh, uh, I think there's a significant difference between this and the John Edwards exposés. Uh, and, and that was that uh, when John Edwards was running, the daily newspapers covered it far more extensively than they have covered the Cal Cunningham situation, and also uh, one other thing, uh, the circulation of those newspapers is down significantly from that time, during that time period. Uh, so now Tom Tellis's uh, campaign, or actually, I guess it's the third party uh, group, are running ads uh, which are bringing this uh, sex scandal to the attention of the public. Do you think that last week's poll was maybe a little early on that issue? Well, I think it's certainly possible that uh, it will get closer, but I just don't know. And it's also possible that it won't. And I think the precedent for that is the president of the United States. Nothing uh, involved in this Cunningham story is nearly as salacious as what came out on Trump uh, 50, uh, excuse me, 20, 
it's an interesting parallel. The Cunningham story came out Friday night, 25 days before the election. And four years ago, the Trump Access Hollywood story came out on Friday night, 25 days before the election. And Trump actually ended up doing better than he was doing before that came out. I don't know that Cunningham's going to do better than he was doing before that came out, but it certainly shows how sort of numb a lot of voters are to these kinds of personal scandals in a way where they would have been considerably more devastating in a different generation. And I think that one way that Democrats who are repulsed by Cunningham sort of rationalize to themselves voting for him anyway, is they say, well, Trump said stuff that I'm not going to repeat on the radio on tape, uh, and the Republicans voted for him anyway. So why should we not vote for Cunningham when the Republicans are voting for Trump and what Trump did was worse? So I actually think Trump is a problem for Tillis in terms of trying to exploit this issue, because I think a lot of people's attitude is just, well, we put somebody in the White House who was on tape saying these very disgusting things, and his party base voted for him anyway. So why should we change our minds? My guess is that it's going to end up being a lot closer than it would have been if not for this scandal, but that if there's no more huge new revelations, I think Cunningham was up by enough before this came that he's going to weather it. The other thing that we haven't gotten into yet is so many votes have already been cast. It may be a situation where Cunningham does lose among people who vote between now and election day, but he has such a large vote lead in the bank already because of people who got their ballots in September and returned them, that that may be enough that he can withstand this because there's hundreds of thousands of people who have already voted. This may not uh, bode well for uh, early voting in the future because people uh, may say, you know, I think I'm going to wait at least a week before the election. If I'm going to vote absentee, I think I want to have all the facts. What about the military situation? If uh, the military takes action against Cal Cunningham, how would that affect uh, his uh, position? Well, I think that's the kind of thing that certainly could make the story worse for him, if nothing else, because it just keeps it in the news. Uh, so far, this story's reminded me a little bit of the WikiLeaks stuff with Hillary Clinton's hacked emails in 2016, in the sense that there's been a little bit of a drip, 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 drip aspect to it, where there's some new little revelation every day that keeps it in the news one way or the other. So I, you know, I, I, I have no idea what the military would do with this. I assume a lot of people have affairs in the military, and I don't know uh, <laughs> what the military publicly takes action uh, related to in most of those. So if they do something that's very high profile and dramatic, certainly uh, that could hurt Cunningham. Uh, but I do think that a lot of this race is just kind of baked in. The Supreme Court uh, matter uh, is one that uh, is kind of interesting because uh, a large number of people have indicated that they feel like that perhaps the choice of the next Supreme Court justice should fall to the next uh, to the elected president in November. Uh, and meanwhile, the Republican Party is pushing to go ahead and get confirmation of uh, the uh, nominee that uh, President Trump has put forward. Will that be a factor in the election, or is that uh, just sort of it is what it is? Well, so this is kind of an interesting thing. I think that if the Senate race ends up being super close, obviously the explanation people are going to give is that it was because of the sex scandal but I actually think it's more likely that it'll be because of the Supreme Court vote. 
because something that's been interesting in our polling all year is that we have found that the undecideds in the Senate race are very strongly Republican leaning. They're people who like Trump and don't like Tillis, conservative voters who like Trump and don't like Tillis. And I think the reason they don't like Tillis is because they think he's been insufficiently supportive of Trump. I think Tillis has been pretty darn supportive of Trump, but some Trump voters think he's been insufficiently supportive of Trump. The Supreme Court race is the, the excuse me, the Supreme Court vacancy is the perfect issue to make those uh, Trump supporters who don't like Tillis feel better about Tillis and come over to his column. So something we've always found is that even if Cunningham's been up by six or seven points on Tillis in a poll, the undecideds are like Trump plus 40. And we have found that if the undecideds voted for the same party for Senate that they're voting for president, that all of a sudden Cunningham's six or seven point lead would come down to two or three points. So I think between the Supreme Court seat and the sex scandal, uh, those are things that give Trump voters who don't like Tillis an excuse to vote for Tillis and get the Senate race to tighten up. So I actually do think that it is an important issue uh, in the Senate race that could flip things. I think it's uh, less important of an issue in the presidential race just because so many people's minds are totally made up. And the other thing is that uh, people do narrowly think that the new president should be able to make the appointment instead of Trump. But it's really something where everybody's opinion on that just tracks who they're voting for for president. If you're voting for Trump already, you think he should make the appointment. If you're voting for Biden already, you think he should make the appointment. But it's not causing people to move back and forth between those Biden and Trump camps. Well, that's interesting. And uh, of course, all of the data that you have is always so interesting. And we've got uh, one final segment coming up. And we're going to take a look not only at uh, the uh, uh, sort of a review of the presidential race, but also the other races that will be on the ballot, including the governor's race, the governor of North Carolina, and uh, also uh, the congressional races. We have not, uh, in North Carolina, we haven't touched on those. Uh, so we will spend some time on that as well. Uh, our guest is uh, Tom Jensen. He's the director of public policy polling. And uh, as I said, uh, we've got one final segment and a lot of ground to cover. So uh, stay tuned for more right here on Carolina Newsmakers. We'll see you right after this break. The Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council present the story of Tom and Levi. Tom is the smartest man I know. He's been a professor at two major universities, he's been a teacher for over 40 years. One day, he told me that he was having um, problems in his classes. I think one of the students had asked the question and he didn't remember the answer. And I also noticed that he was letting his class out earlier than they were supposed to let out. And he was telling them that he was doing it as a favor to them. But I think in reality, he just wanted to get out of there. Um, I was really starting to worry because I saw something was wrong. Levi and I talked about how it would change our lives, but he was there beside me, and my love for him was just immense. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash ourstories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Okay, men, this is your time. Maybe you didn't choose this, but you're here now. You're gonna go out there and be an all-star caregiver. It's up to you. So what are you gonna do? You're gonna go grocery shopping, cook, clean, be there emotionally and physically. You gotta dig deeper. 
drive them to physical therapy, doctor's appointments. Don't you forget about the pharmacy. No, you won't. Because that's what caregivers do. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. This is your time to show the world, your family, and yourself that you're tougher than tough. Now go out there and be the best caregiver this world has ever seen. Caregiving is tougher than tough. Find the care guides you need at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. Our guest is Tom Jensen on Carolina Newsmakers, and uh, Tom has been with us a number of times. Uh, we have enjoyed having Tom, and of course, those of you who are listening to the half-hour version of this program, if you'd like to hear the in-depth comments that he made in two other segments, you can go to carolinanewsmakers.com and hear those comments, uh, about 24 minutes of content. And uh, Jason Kong puts those online so that you don't have to listen to the entire program. You can just listen to those. Well, Tom, we've talked about a lot of things. One of the things we have not talked about in, in the, so far is the congressional races in North Carolina. We have had a reapportionment of the uh, congressional districts changing around. Uh, are, have you done any polling in these congressional districts? Are they going to fall pretty much along party lines as far as registration goes, or do we have any races that uh, appear to be closer than perhaps we might have thought? Well, when these new congressional maps came out, I would not have expected any congressional races to be competitive in North Carolina. And uh, we actually do end up having a couple competitive ones that were maybe a little bit unexpected. Uh, one is sort of in a district that runs from Charlotte to Fayetteville, North Carolina Congressional District 8. Uh, the Republican incumbent Richard Hudson is being challenged by uh, former state Supreme Court Justice Patricia Timmons Goodson, uh, and it's a one or two point race. Uh, Hudson, I think, has been ahead in all the polling, but it's, it's really quite close, uh, and it's a district that Trump won by about eight or nine points, uh, and Democrats are having some success in places like that because the country as a whole has, has moved about eight or nine points uh, to the left compared to that 2016 election. So I think that's probably the marquee congressional race in the state. And then the other one that really wasn't expected to be very competitive uh, is in the mountains, North Carolina Congressional District 11. That was Mark Meadows's seat before he went to become speaker, uh, excuse me, chief of staff and pretty safe Republican district. But the Republicans nominated a, a young man who I think is 25, Madison Cawthorn, who uh, turned out to have some uh, less appealing things in his past that sort of made him a weaker candidate. And Democrats have a strong candidate in uh, Colonel Mo Davis, who has a very strong uh, military background and a good story to tell along those lines. Uh, so even though that district voted for Trump by 17, which would make it the second most Trump supporting district in the country to have a Democratic member of Congress, uh, that race is polling pretty close as well. If I had to make a prediction, I, I would say that probably partisanship wins out in the end and Cawthorn gets in there, but that's proved to be a much more competitive race than expected. Uh, now, these are not competitive races in North Carolina's second and sixth congressional districts, but because of the new districting maps, we will have two new Democratic members of Congress because the new lines included two safe Democratic districts that's going to be Deborah Ross in Congressional District 2 in the Triangle 
and Kathy Manning in Congressional District 6 in the triad. So that'll get the congressional delegation from the 10 to 3 Republican advantage that it's been for the last decade to an 8 to 5 Republican advantage. And then Democrats do have a couple more chances to get a sixth or maybe even a seventh seat in the congressional delegation. I believe the last time Democrats had a majority of the congressional delegation was 12 years ago. We'll switch back to the national situation because we've talked about the possibility of the Democrats taking control of the Senate, which would give, if Biden holds on to his lead and the House remains pretty much in the control of the Democrats, that would give the Democratic Party control of both houses and also the uh, presidential uh, offices and all that goes with that. What are you seeing as far as the, the prospects of the Democrats taking control of the United States Senate? Well, as you alluded to earlier, North Carolina really is probably going to be the decisive seat. Right now, Republicans have a 53-47 majority, and they're likely to add a seat in Alabama uh, to their columns. That would get them to 54. But I think Democrats are now at this point pretty well favored to win Senate seats in Colorado, Arizona, and Maine. So that would get Republicans to just 51. And then the 50th seat for Democrats would indeed be this North Carolina Senate seat. Uh, that's probably the most straightforward path to, for Democrats to control the Senate is to win North Carolina, win the presidency, and then Kamala Harris would break a bunch of 50-50 ties in the Senate. Now, what I'll say is Democrats have a lot of other opportunities where they're close in Senate races in places that might not have been expected. There's a very close Senate race in Iowa. There's a very close Senate race in Montana. There's two close Senate races in Georgia. There's a close Senate race in Alaska. There's a close Senate race in Kansas. There's a close Senate race in Texas. Every single one of those places that I just named is a Republican held Senate seat. I'm not sure I feel like Democrats are over 50% chances of winning any of those seats individually, but given that there are eight or nine opportunities like that, you would think Democrats might up winning it, end up winning at least one or two of them so that's a path, and I, I miss South Carolina. Uh, so that's a path where Democrats could end up not just getting to 50 seats, but getting to maybe 51, 52, 53. Interesting, interesting. Well, uh, now we, we have also not talked too much about the gubernatorial race in North Carolina, because uh, at least in the polls I've seen so far, that one does not appear to be close. Uh, is it closer than it was, or are the polling numbers about the same as they've been in the race between incumbent Governor Roy Cooper and his challenger, Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest. We're actually seeing Governor Cooper increase his lead as the election gets closer. Uh, it had been down to seven or eight points over the summer, uh, but our most recent poll had Governor Cooper ahead by 12 points. And I think that that is because North Carolinians feel like he has handled this virus pretty well. And I especially think when you uh, set up a contrast between how he's handled it and how Trump's handled it, that makes Cooper look even better. Uh, and Forrest, I think, has hung a lot of his campaign sort of on the thought that uh, Cooper has not handled coronavirus well and that he would take a much more hands-off approach to dealing with the virus. And the reality is that North Carolinians want a strong approach to dealing with the virus. So I think that the sort of frame between how Cooper has approached COVID and how Forrest would approach COVID has, instead of causing Forrest to get closer, actually caused Forrest to get further behind. 
I think the intrigue at the state level is going to be the lieutenant governor's race. I still think that that race is pretty 50-50. We'll see if Cooper can pull Yvonne Holly over with his coattails, uh, but I don't think we're going to have a very competitive race for governor. We've got about a minute to, for you to summarize your comments on the presidential race. A number of people joined the program when it's in progress. We spent the entire first segment of the program talking about the presidential race. How about giving us a quick summary in one minute of the things that you pointed out as far as your most recent poll uh, here in North Carolina and across the country? So Biden is up by about 10 points nationally. In the key swing states that will determine the Electoral College, Biden is up by four to six points. And the big thing that makes this different from 2016 when Trump came back and won, even though he was down by similar margins in the polls, is that this time there are almost no undecided voters. So it's going to be hard for Trump to come back because there just aren't very many people open to the possibility of changing their mind. Uh, and And in North Carolina, Biden's up by four, one of the biggest leads he's had this year, uh, up a couple points since the debate and since Trump got COVID. So still a good amount of time left in the election, but it's getting harder and harder for Trump to come back. Well, we had, uh, we got uh, 10 seconds for this comment. Uh, A lot of folks were expecting uh, the fact that the returns might be late in coming in and uh, may be so close that we won't know for several days after the election. What you're telling me now seems like the, the suspense might be a lot shorter than that. You've got 10 seconds to answer. The suspense all comes down to Florida. Florida is able to count all of its vote in one night. And if Biden wins Florida, it's over. So that'll be a good one to watch on election night. We may know early if Biden's winning Florida that he'll win the election as a whole. Thanks, Tom. Tom Jensen has been our guest. He's the director of public policy polling. If you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast or uh, hear the two segments that you might have missed if you're listening to the half hour version, you can go to carolinanewsmakers.com. The program has been produced by Jason Cog, and he'll have another guest for us next week. So the next week, have a nice week, everybody. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers.